Route 30 West on my way home. Wooden crosses watch like ghosts from the side of the road. Lost souls, I hope you find your home. Death can come at any time. Keep your eyes on the road. Right Spot Motel, she's a beacon in the night. Ritz by the hour, lipstick, neon lace that outshines the sun. Take your lover, have some fun. While you're still alive, we still got your mind. You need to learn to lighten up. Elephants and apparitions of soldiers walk amongst their graves. They'll come to you, don't be afraid. They'll tell you life's too short to fight, and they'll be on their way. Route 30 West, on my way home. Wooden crosses watch like ghosts from the side of the road. Lost souls looking for a home. Death can come at any time. You just never know. Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd Middle Initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right. It is me, and we have been listening to the song Route 30 Lullaby, written and sung by Thomas Rue from his 2006 CD titled Thomas Rue and So-Called Friends. He also performs and records as Pale Barn Ghosts with a bunch of friends, so I am assuming it's the same bunch of friends, and Thomas Rue is on the phone with me right now. Hi, Thomas. Hey, how are you doing, Todd? I'm doing well, and is that, am I correct, are the so-called friends also the Pale Barn Ghost band? Um, the so-called friends is the same electric guitar player. Um, my guitar player, uh, his name's Klaus Funk. Um, we were born on the same day few years apart um been playing together uh since around that around that record so yeah and then we have a uh, our drummer is john dolly and uh bass player uh the gentleman named uh, dean bacher um both uh gettysburg area natives well the now on that route 30 lullaby that's you playing the driving guitar are you doing the lead or is that your friend um, the lead parts are are Klaus, and then the, all the acoustic stuff's always 
me. That's kind of how all the records go. Um, I, I mean, I write everything to be solo acoustic. Uh, so if I go play out on my own, the songs still work. Um, and I try to, you know, have some licks or, or, uh, you know, kind of rhythm leads in there. Um, and, uh, and then Klaus kind of fills in, uh, everything else. Um, which it's, uh, it, it, it makes a lot of things, uh, makes a lot of things easier. Uh, you know, when you play louder places, um, you know, like places besides like listening rooms or coffee houses, it's, it's a little bit easier to come across with, with a full setup. Um, and I think that was one of my reasons of wanting to do a band thing was just number one, to get, to get better at singing over, um, like louder music. Cause I never felt my voice was very strong. So, um, it, it certainly, uh, I never thought I would enjoy playing in a band more than playing solo. Cause I really like playing solo so much. Um, but you know, you know, as the years go on, like the places where that's, um, where you're able to do that well, where you're able to play solo and have, um, you know, a, sort of listening audience or, or a room that's conducive to that. Like that's, I think that's become a little more rare over the years. No, it definitely has, uh, the, uh, a lot of the coffee houses either no longer have music or they have sparse music. And that's, I think mainly due to the, um, the fees they have to pay to ASCAP and BMI and, uh, CSAC that the, the small business just can't, you know, can't afford, Two, three, four thousand dollars a year on top of their regular help overhead, and then paying musicians. The um, so you're absolutely right. So it's become almost like for for performers like you and I, and I prefer perform almost a hundred percent solo. But for those of us who perform solo as duos or trios, or even in small groups like yours, it's really become the occasional um, winery, uh, farm brewery those seem to be the types of venues. Do you find that that are more conducive to our style music? De- definitely. Um, you know, the, the, the wineries and, and the microbreweries have really saved, um, a lot of live music. Um, which, you know, those, those seem to be the places where, um, I know like the first, the first places that are, I felt like our band really started connecting with people was definitely at, um, at the microbreweries. Um, and, uh, the winery, you know, the, the wineries that, that, um, that I, that I played solo have have been great as well. There's a place in Smithsburg, uh, called Red Heifer. Um, they have a nice setup during the winter time for indoors. Um, it's a really good room to play, but yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. I think, I do think like after all this stuff's over with, um, I, I do think audiences are going to um, change their appreciation for live performances. I, I, the, the gigs that I got to play last spring, I noticed a huge change in, in, in the level of enthusiasm uh, from the audiences just because people have been cooped up. Um, and I think there was a sense of, wow, this is really, really great treat to be able to go out and hear music and, and have food and, you know, and, and be around people. <laughs> so, um, I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that's the backlash to all this is that something, something good might come out of it. 
Now, did you have many gigs this past year, um, late spring, summertime? We we had a handful, um, uh, mostly uh, uh, with the exception of one local pub here um, that uh, kind of fashioned a, a, another backyard section. Um, all the other microbreweries and wineries were having outdoor music, and we were able to do uh, like like five or so gigs, and um, and they were really great. Like I, I don't think there was a bad one in that in that time frame there. Um, it's, uh, I, I, it's the only time I've really been thankful that I, that I, you know, don't play full time. Um, because I, I really feel for my friends that, that make their living, uh, playing music. Um, even some of the, uh, touring artists that, that I've become friends with, like, you know, kind of finding out how they're struggling right now is, um, like I don't know what I would do if I if I was in that situation, um, and I a lot of them are making art and, and selling paintings and, and doing whatever they can, uh, you know the live streams with Venmo accounts and virtual tip jars and things like that. Like that's definitely save you know saved some of them, but um, it's definitely got to be hard and I think it's got to be mentally pretty stressful. I would think. I would I would think so. And um, for those people who don't know who Thomas Rue is, and most people who follow the acoustic music scene in the Frederick, Maryland area and the surrounding region up to Gettysburg and out to Hagerstown and, and so forth, know who he, who he is. The, um, but he is the driving guitar that you heard in that first song, and he's very well known, but he's also extremely well known in the emergency medical field, um, which I always make mention of whenever I introduce you, and I know it slightly embarrasses you, but you, uh, you've you been doing that for a number of years, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I've been a paramedic since 2006, and I was an EMT uh, for eight years uh, before that. Um, so it's almost it's about like 23, I don't know, <laughs> it's over 20 years. It's, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's uh, um, yeah, I... I it's weird to think about how long uh, I've been doing this. Um, well, if, that, go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, what I was going to say is most most people like myself confuse an EMT and a paramedic as as one and the same, but it's not, is it? No, they're um, a different. So there's EMT basic and EMT paramedic, um, and EMT basic is what they call basic life support. They provide, um, they have automatic defibrillators, which you find like, uh, in public places. Um, so they carry an automatic defibrillator. They, um, splint injuries, uh, you know, control bleeding, basic CPR. Um, and, and they're always adding to their, their skill, um, their protocols. Like now they're able to do blood glucose checks and administer, certain medications uh prior to our arrival um but the emc paramedic is uh what they call advanced life support and and essentially we carry all of the resuscitation drugs that an er has like in our on our unit um so we have like you know iv benadryl iv epinephrine um you know we've i mean we've carried narcan for for many years um we carry um, magnesium, um, like just the whole realm of uh, emergency 
um, acute care drugs, like emergency intervention drugs. And then our defibrillators, um, we have a we have pacemaker, defibrillator, and cardioversion all on the same uh, monitor. So we actually interpret the rhythm and then dial up how much joules we shock at or if we're going to pace, like how many milliamps and what the rate is. Um, then with cardioversion, we, you know, we synchronize the monitor to the rhythm and cardiovert at a certain amount of joules. So it's, it's, um, it's a, it's about a two year difference in schooling. Um, you know, the EMT basic, I think is over like a semester. Um, and an EMT paramedic is an associate's degree, I believe. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a jump. It's, it's a bit of a, a bit of a jump. Uh, I was lucky. I worked on a medic unit, um, stationed in an emergency room. The first eight years that I did EMS, I was uh, based in an emergency department. Um, and then I drove the, the medic to the call to rendezvous with the ambulance. Um, cause a lot of rural areas have, they have a volunteer or an ambulance staff with EMT basics. And then the medic unit or the ALS, uh, comes in like a chase truck. Um, and the reason they do that is more affordable. Um, so each company, each local ambulance doesn't have to pay an ALS provider to be on staff all the time. Um, but like in Frederick County, where you live, the, they have what they call MICUs and so the, the paramedic and the EMT are on the ambulance and they respond together no matter what the level of call is. So it's, um, it's real confusing. Like it's confusing. <laughs> I mean, I've been doing it for 20 years and I, and there's still variants to all that that I don't understand. So, <laughs> well, I would imagine just like in music that each call is slightly different or a whole lot different. The, I mean, there must be thousands of different types of medical emergencies that you have to just, gosh, I guess, figure out in the first minute. It must be it, stressful. Um, it's, it's really strange. Like the, it, you know, the, the stress with this job kind of comes from like, for me, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to speak for other people, but you know, for me, the stress is, um, after the call is said and done, like trying to, you know, re go over it in my head. And, and, um, and occasionally there's times where you think, well, did I, you know, should I have done the IV before the airway? Should I, you know, should I have given meds before I, you know, intubated the patient or did I do things in the right order? Did I make the right decision on which hospital we went to or should I have flown the patient or should I have not flown the patient? Um, stuff like that. Like that's to me where, where the stress of the job comes in because the other stuff is, um, you know, we have a list of things that have to be done and, um, you know, for each type of call. And when you have all those things to focus on, it really kind of re removes you from the, you know, seriousness of the situation. Like you're, you're more focused on the patient and what you have to do. And you kind of, you're able to kind of block, you know, the, the personal stuff out of it a little bit. Um, and, uh, and we're really good at, um, I mean, just like most emergency service personnel, like even, you know, ER nurses, ER doctors, like you're able to tell a lot just by walking in a room and looking at a patient. Um, I mean, I can, I can tell usually when I walk in the door, how serious something is going to be, or if, or if the patient is potentially going to become, you know, acutely ill, like while in my care, um, like just the, just the other night, um, 
the other night I had a gentleman that ended up going into uh, a lethal arrhythmia that we shocked him out of, but he was having a heart attack. And, and I knew when I walked in the door and I saw how he was positioned and I saw his skin color. And I was like, yeah, this is, I have a feeling this, this is a, you know, guys having the, having the big one. <laughs> and, um, and he was, and we anticipated everything and, and, uh, he made it to the hospital and to the cath lab and it's probably, probably going to go home in a day or two, I hope. And, so, and, yeah, pro- and probably feeling a lot better than he did going in, I'm sure. Uh, I'd hope so. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, you always feel for people like, uh, you know, you know, when you're sitting there like kind of thinking mentally, like what this person, cause they, the person knows something is wrong and, and they're having pain or they're having trouble breathing. And, um, and you think about like all the stuff that's going on around them is out of their control and they have to kind of just, you know, uh, there's not much they can do and they're, they're kind of trusting you to, to, to do everything for them. And, um, yeah, it's, I, I, I mean, I think all paramedics at some point are become patients, like, you know, as we get older. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I'm starting to think about from that perspective a little more, um, you know, because it's uh, it's got to be frightening. You know, it's it's not, definitely not as frightening for me as it is for for the patient. You know, like um, one of the, the best things I learned when I my first year as a medic, uh, another medic said to me, because um, I was always you know you, you walk you I would walk to work because um, I lived near the hospital and uh, and on the way every morning I would be like um, you know going over all the possible things that I could encounter that day. And like, how, how am I going to deal with this if this happens? And, you know, you're always running through everything in your mind. And, um, and I remember talking to another medic about it and they said, just remember, like, it's not your emergency. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and that's kind of, it's not a bad way to think about it. You know, like, it's like, I can do everything I can do, but beyond that, like, it's ultimately not in my hands, you know? Um, uh, I mean, it is in my hands as far as like making sure I do everything that needs to be done. But, um, but ultimately like I've done everything right and had the outcome be bad. And I've had calls where I felt like things just didn't go well and the patient ended up doing great. Like it, sometimes I think there's just, uh, you know, it's not in your hands all the time. Sure. So. <laughs> now I do I do want to discuss music more so than yeah, yeah. than, than yeah, your, me your medical background but I'm I'm <laughs> just okay. I'm just curious how did you get into doing what you do professionally? Um it's really strange um and I hadn't thought about it um until someone asked me that recently um I think being a paramedic came into my radar um I was really into skate like I, I still really love skateboarding but I was when I was younger that's like that's what I lived for. And, um, there was a pro skater that had, he had like this huge impact on, on skateboard culture and, and, and kind of changed the sport. And, uh, he had retired like early. He, he really didn't like being like kind of this celebrity. So he decided he, he didn't want to pursue it any, any longer. Um, and there was an interview with him in a skateboard magazine and he said that he was, uh, studying to be a paramedic with, with LA County fire department. And and that was like the first time I'd ever thought about that job. And, um, so a few years later, uh, I was, um, I had moved back. 
I had moved after high school, I moved a bunch of times, like in a short period of time, like I moved to California, was there for a little while, went back to Pennsylvania, went back to California. Um, then I moved to Texas, uh, with a friend of mine. Um, and then when I came back from that, I decided to take an EMT class, um, near where my parents live in West Virginia. And, um, so I had my EMT and I was working at a ski resort and I managed the, uh, snowboard rental and ski repair shop at Whitetail. And, um, there was a clinic, the clinic, uh, first aid clinic is, was attached to the snowboard rental shop. And I got to talking to the people in the clinic. And one of them was one of the ER managers for a local hospital. And she was also the president of uh, their medic unit that they had. And when I told her I had my EMT, she was like, well, you should come, you should apply, you know, at the hospital. And, and I said, well, I've never been on an ambulance before. <laughs> like I've never, have no experience. And she said, well, you know, maybe we could give it a try. And like, so I was like the first person they had hired with zero experience. And so I learned everything from ER nurses and, and, uh, and paramedics, um, in that job. And, uh, it was a good, it, it was a great career. Like it, it, when I started playing music, which was a bit later, um, cause I kind of started all this really late, uh, like, late twenties is when I started trying to play and sing at the same time. And, um, and it was a really good job for that because you'd work like three, 12 hour, 12 hour shifts a week and then you'd be off. Um, and I was really lucky. I worked like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So I always had my weekends off like to, to play or to go to open mics or whatever. And, um, yeah. So yeah, it's just, it was a strange kind of just happenstance and, and, and it ended up fitting, my lifestyle, I think. Like, I don't know if I could work five days a week. Um, you know, I think that'd be really hard for me to do. Even even shorter shifts, I don't think I could do it. <laughs> well, so, I'm curious, who was the skateboarder? Was it Stacy Peralta? Is that who that was? Or? Uh, it was a gentleman named Matt Hensley, who mm-hmm. weirdly is the, um, the accordion player for the band Flogging Molly, which is like an Irish, kind of punk rock Irish band. Uh, Irish pub rock band. Um, it's really, they're kind of one of the bigger, uh, they're, they're kind of known in the punk world, uh, but they're definitely like, you know, they have a lot of Irish tradition. Um, and he's their accordion player. Um, so he went on to be pretty successful with that, but he was just stylistically like a really, uh, like when he came around, he, he was the first guy that wore like cut off, uh, army fatigues, like the cargo shorts, mm-hmm. like, with, with like a chain wallet and, you know, a punk rock t-shirt and, and like, like low, low top bands, you know, like he was, uh, but he was a street, street skateboarder, um, that brought a lot of like vert style tricks to the street. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was, um, if you were a skateboarder at that time, he was kind of the, you know, you know, kind of the guy, um, but, and I think it's cool that he retired early um, because it, I think it just showed his character. Like, you know, he, it, he didn't, I think he saw there wasn't, you know, I mean, there might be a, there's certainly more of a future in that, in that profession these days. But I think he saw that, you know, as being a professional athlete, like your, your, your years are kind of limited. 
um, especially when you have a lot of younger up and coming kids that are trying to take your spot. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so I, I really respected that he did that, that he, that he saw that, you know, you know, I, I did this, I did it well and I can still do it for fun. And I, but I don't need to be like in the spotlight like anymore. Well, yeah. the, I'm, I'm sorry, finish, finish no. the thought. No, no, that's it. That's it. Okay. Now the, I remember going up to, it was either Chambersburg might have been Greencastle to an open mic that um, you and your friend Steve were doing, and I I was there, and that was the first time I think or second time I played out the emerald guitar that I had that had all the sharpie design on it, but the uh, which wasn't a very good guitar. They were in their infancy back then, but that would have been probably about two thousand five or so. Was that about when you kicked in your um, playing and sing at the same time? Uh, I think I started uh, and like around 99 or 2000 um, with just the simple trying to figure out if I could strum and sing at the same time. Um, And it kind of happened. Like I went, I remember I went to the beach to hang out with some friends. Um, These girls that I knew uh, all worked down in ocean city. And so I just went down there for a weekend um, just to hang out. And they had a, the live, um, Ani DeFranco CD, uh, mm-hmm. it was like the double, the double CD. And, and I remember hearing that and just, and like first being like, wow, that's an acoustic guitar. Like, and, and I just remember thinking like that, that, um, like her style, like the approach was all very much like all the things that I liked. Um, you know, it was sort of aggressive. It was, it had a lot to say. Um, and it was, but the great thing about it was you didn't need other people like other bandmates to like create that, you know, to create something. And, um, and once I started kind of looking into her, I, I discovered people like Ben Harper. Um, cause I think Ben Harper was the first person I started covering because they could, I could figure out the guitar, the guitar parts and, and his voice wasn't so much, you know, out of my range that, that I couldn't cover it effectively. Um, like Ani's stuff is now I think I can figure it out, but you know, she's all different tunings and as a, you know, kind of a beginning person, like it's hard to go to open mics and have a different tuning for every song <laughs> in a kind of uh, luxury that she has, you know, um, you know, with having a crew and different guitars and things like that. Um, but that, that was kind of where it started for me. And I would just write a song here and there. And and when I would go to an open mic, I'd usually play like a cover and then try to play a couple of original songs. And, um, and in about 2000, 2001, there was an open mic in Gettysburg um, in the backyard of the the coffee house here, the, the ragged edge. And there was a gentleman named Bob Sellers, um, and he had like this real great setup. It's just two condenser mics and a chair on a piece of plywood in the middle of the backyard, and you would just sit down and play. Like there was no plugging anything in, um, and the crowd was really quiet. And you listened to everybody that played. The young kids that hung out there from the local high school uh, were just very friendly. And it was just, it kind of blew my mind. Like I remember going there for the first time and, and, and 
being kind of impressed at how uh, how the, the young, how nice the younger kids were. Like, I mean, because I was in my you know mid to late twenties, and they were like eighteen and like seventeen or eighteen, and and they would they just came up and introduced themselves, and they were interested in what I was playing, and so then I would try to write a song every week that open mic so I'd have something new to play um, and I think it's only because there was people listening I had like an audience um, for that you know so then I just started doing that um, and it was kind of hard to go back to cover songs like uh, I mean I, there was a period I was playing sort of full-time like I, I would play three three nights a week and I would work two days a week and um and that that was good for about like, I think I did that for about a year, and I kind of quickly discovered that 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 maybe wasn't for me. Um, like I kind of learned that I'm not a good open mic host, and I'm not a good um, bar entertainment guy, you know. Um, and I really admire like 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 people like yourself who are able to, you know, all of us musicians have egos um, and. I'm always impressed by people that that, that uh, are able to be good facilitators for for things like songwriter nights or open mics, where they don't let their own ego dictate like what what happens. Like they're letting artists come in and they're letting them be the be in the spotlight. I think that's um, that's a gift. Like I I get worried and anxious about too many things, like at an open mic to to be a good host to anybody <laughs> like you know um especially when people are rude like people that don't kind of know the open mic etiquette like i i have very little tolerance sometimes and for because uh, i want people to have a good time and i want people to listen to other people and when other people are rude and they don't pay attention to the performer like i have i, I don't have a good way of approaching it that uh, that doesn't turn out me like just coming off as a complete jerk. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you, having hosted many, 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 many open mics and, and showcases, there's a lot of biting your tongue and <laughs> and holding back and just and you know I was never really good at shutting things down unless it really got out of hand. But I I totally agree with you. It's not for everybody, and the the biggest challenge for a host in a situation like that is the time clock yeah because yeah. the venues have a specific time that they're allowing you to do it and it could be two hours it could be two and a half or it could be an hour and a half and you only have so many people you can put on the stage in that time period and it's so difficult to have to say to someone i'm sorry we're full tonight they go what well, is an open mic yes but so i totally agree with you it's not for everybody and it it does take some of the fun out of performing in a way because you have so much on your mind about as a performer, you then start worrying about, well, did I, did I play that song too long? Let's say I know this person, you know, you start thinking. Well, yeah. So, but the, you know, you started playing and singing at the same time in like 1999, but was music in your life prior to that? Um, it was in my life. Not at, um, as far as, you know, my, both my parents are really, um, I, you know, it's something I'm very grateful for. They both really like, like music. My, my mom, especially like she, she just is always interested in, in, in new stuff that she hears. Um, 
and like I try to turn her on to different different things that I hear that I think she'll like. Um, and my dad, you know, same thing. Like he, uh, um, we, I grew up. I, I don't really know where to say I'm from because we've I've lived. I was born in Iowa and I lived in Minnesota, and then I kind of. I say I grew up in Texas. It's kind of uh, Texas and Pennsylvania, probably the main two places uh, that I lived the longest. Um, but when we lived in Texas, uh, you know, my dad took me everywhere. Like my, both my parents, like I, I mean, uh, on the weekends when, you know, dad and I would go driving around and we'd go to these like, uh, like, like shack style bars in the woods, uh, and the places that had like, um, like these old cafes that had, that had music. And there was a lot of singer songwriters, uh, like I think. I think a few times we saw Jerry Jeff Walker at a local cafe in, in spring, which is outside of Houston. Um, I know we saw the Charlie, Charlie Daniels band um, play at a local steak place. Um, I mean, there was a lot of that kind of, uh, you know, Texas style songwriter stuff around. Um, and my parents really like, my mom really likes fifties music. And, and I think, um, I think that really, uh, affected me like that's probably my favorite style of music is like 50s late 50s rock and roll mm-hmm. um, and um, like when I do try to play music on electric guitar that's usually what I gravitate towards um, um, I don't on the acoustic for whatever reason but on electric like you know I decided I had to learn um Johnny be good I had to learn it like note for note and I like last year like I spent like a couple days like you know getting that down and um and then from there I've just learned some other things but but yeah like they they were um uh, there's always it's always been present um but neither of my parents you know play um and and I took uh guitar lessons my senior senior year of high school um is when my attention span finally straightened out enough to do anything um like i had a real hard time in school up until that point and uh like my last year of high school i did i got straight a's and and all of a sudden could pay attention and sit still and uh and was like interested in learning so then i decided to take guitar lessons and um and that, then i just learned basic chords and and uh you know the patterns for scales um and just had enough tools to where I could learn songs on my own. Cause I remember when I went to lessons, I told the instructor, like, I just want to know how I can figure things out. Like, I don't want to learn how to play other people's stuff. I just want to learn like how I need, I want the building blocks to make, to make my own stuff. And, uh, and so that's kind of where my lessons were. It was just learning all the basics and, um, like bar chords, open chords, open scales, you know, all the pentatonics and, and that stuff. And then I just kind of quit lessons after about a year or two. And, and then just started like playing on my own and figuring it out. So, yeah. Yeah. That was actually quite astute of you because the average person going into a, a guitar lesson wouldn't say, this is what I want to learn. They would just go in blank faced and just take whatever the instructor, the instructor might even ask, well, what do you want to do? I want to play songs. So how did you come up with that? Or that was just something that had been brewing in your head. So that when you went in. 
yeah, I just figured that was like, um, I, I guess I figured that was what all the people that I liked had in common is that, you know, they took the things that existed and then, you know, made their own thing out of it. And, and I, I, I knew that I didn't want to, I knew that if I wrote songs or played in a band, that I wanted it to be original. Like I didn't, I didn't want to, like, I wasn't very content with learning. Um, I remember, you know, it was, it was the nineties at the time. So when I was, you know, learning guitar, it was a lot of, um, there was a lot of stuff like the Red Hot Chili Peppers or like Nirvana or Pearl Jam or things like that. Um, and I really liked all that music, but I wanted, you know, to me, the thing they all had in common was it's all these different styles, but there's something familiar. Like there's a familiar, they all have a common, uh, like harder soul, you know, like, like the style might be different, but the, but the instinct to create is, is, is the common denominator. And, um, and that's what I thought like would be the most enjoyable thing. Like was just to be able to create something. And then if you, if people liked it, like that'd be like, that'd be great. Like you make a song and people are like, Hey, I really like that song like that. I don't think it, I don't think it feels the same if you're, if you play a cover in a bar and even if you play it really well, I, I don't think that applause or that, appreciation for it is the same as playing something that's your own and having people like it. Like, I think it's like very different. Um, I played a cover gig uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, my closest friend is, he's, he's no longer with us, um, but he invited me to play bass on it. They were doing a DC area punk rock tribute night where it was all, uh, the DC area punk bands. Um, we just did like a whole set of songs, uh, like from bad brains to minor threat. And, and I played bass. And, uh, so I had to learn like punk rock bass and, and, uh, uh, which is really fun. And, but I remember playing that gig and it was a lot of fun, but I just remember how the one thing that was great about it was there was no stress. Like I didn't feel any anxiety because I'm like, well, it's these songs and I know how to play them and I'm back here and I don't have to sing. Like, I don't have to be in front, like the front person and like, but, but the enjoyment or the, the excitement of it was definitely a lot. It was a lot less than when you play your own gig. Uh, you know, I mean the anxiety level is less, but the, you know, the reward, um, isn't as great, you know, when you're playing the covers, like to me, like I, I just, um, cause like when our band has a good night and like we play three hours of original music and people like stick around and they, and they, they want to know more about your band and how to get the music like that, that feels amazing. Like that's, there's nothing better than that. And, um, I don't think you get that playing in a cover band. It's just, it's a different, and they're both admirable. I mean, like anybody that, that, plays music to me is you know like a is, is like a relative you know i mean it's because it's all the same you know anybody that picks up an instrument like and plays in a band I, I feel some camaraderie with but um but i think in a rural area where it's you're expected to play covers to be able to make a living i think because i was aware of that is why i really kicked against that like <laughs> Cause I don't believe that. Like I, I believe that 
that each area can have their own unique music, just like you have your own unique produce, you know, your own unique cuisine, you know, like you can have your own unique music scene, no matter where, how rural the place is. And, um, like, I believe in that, like, I don't think people are different. Like, you know, I think cities have more people, so you have more artists, but I don't think that people are, are, are better because they're from a, you know, place like LA or New York, you know, I don't believe that. Um, so that's why I've tried really hard to, to try to foster like local original music because it's, I, I think that it's completely possible, you know, to have a scene in the smallest town. Um, and this town is a really good example of that. I mean, we have a pretty, pretty strong group of people here that, um, a lot of really good younger musicians, um, and a lot of even younger ones that I, that I've been starting to hear about. Um, but yeah, it's, that's, that's what it's about. I think is, you know, creating a community. Um, that's why, you know, Frederick is always like, what I love about, um, the folk scene over there is that, I mean, it was the first place that I felt like that I was felt welcomed into, um, you know, like, and meeting people like, you know, David Morreale and yourself and, uh, even Steve Key, you know, back, you know, mm -hmm. he was doing, doing things, um, when he was around, uh, you know, that was a pretty, that, that also might've, I think affected how, um, I feel about gigs. Cause when you would go to like a mid Atlantic, uh, or, or songwriters of Washington sponsored open mic, like when you would go to one of those, like down in Virginia, um, it was very like ideal. I mean, you had a room full of listeners who were mostly musicians. You had really good sound and you had people playing their own material and you could go play your own material and people would pay attention to it. And when you start, when that's how you start and you think that that's how it's supposed to, <laughs> supposed to be, you, you kind of have like a false, uh, um, like, I think it just kind of skewed. I mean, I, I think it made it hard for me to play in, in like noisier places where people don't pay attention. Um, like I didn't understand, like, why, do, why does the place have music if the people here don't care about it? Mm -hmm. um, and, um, yeah, so I think that, that stuff, that whole scene really, uh, whole group of people was, was pretty important. Um, cause you know, I might've given up on it if I had never had that experience of having it go over well. You know? Well, have you ever wanted it to become bigger than it is for you or are you content at the level and that kind of sounds, um, sounds bad, but if you do know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I've been, I, I thought about that a lot. Cause I, I mean, I have, um, uh, like some of my idols, like that I've gotten to know, um, uh, like there's a gentleman uh, who used to be on Ani DeFranco's record label. Uh, he's on new West records now. Um, this guy named, his name's Ed Hamill. Uh, he goes by Hamill on trial and he's like a, what he does is like nothing uh, else I've, that anybody does. It's, it's a combination of, you know, it's like if you took Richard Pryor, George Carlin and Bill Hicks and, and the Ramones and Woody Guthrie and Lou Reed and you, and you, put all these things together into like one performance of one guy with a guitar. 
Clark Hardy the whole time. So that's Einstein. Uh, <laughs> I need come here, buddy. Um, I, I think I've met Einstein before. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's he's kind of the security uh, system in the house here. Um, so anyway, like when I, you know, I've met these people that I that I really admire, and I've seen how hard it is uh, for them, you know, to make it, you know, just just to pay the pay the rent, you know, and and I don't um, like there's not a lot of justice with like like good artists and 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 like their income, you know, right? <laughs> um, like people that are like my friend who you know my friend Ed is at the highest level of songwriting and guitar playing and performance. I mean, he's, he's a prolific writer uh, and plays guitar like nobody that I know. And, um, and he, he does a thing that's like really unique and, you know, he, he has a hard time, even when he was on Ani's, Ani's label and, and touring with her, like that's when he was kind of making, you know, a pretty decent living. And I think he was on Mercury records before that. Um, but to see these people like, like struggle, um, and, and the stuff they have to worry about, like, I think, I think it kind of set into me that like, you know, you can enjoy this thing and still create and write, but, you know, having like being able, like having my paramedic job, like, you know, it, it does offer me some sense of, um, I don't have to worry about those those things so much, um, but I do. You know, when I when I go, I remember you know getting to open for artists. Like I got to open for Rhett Miller of the old ninety sevens, and got to open for Jerry Joseph, uh, Jake Labotte, who's like one of my favorite um, blues indie musicians. And and my friend Ed Hamill had me open for him at the Ten Angel, uh, like a sold out show there, and. Um, when I get to do those things, like it feels, it feels so like it fits so well, you know, like I love being in a different town. Like I love, you know, driving to places and that time in the car, you know, and, um, and I love being able to perform to an audience that's receptive. Um, you know, so I, you know, all of us, I think would like, like to be able to do that full time, but, um, I think there's so much work that goes into that. Um, and you know, to be honest, there's a lot of ego that goes into that, that I just, that's where I fall short. Like the self-promotion thing is, is I don't know why, but it's just really difficult for me. Like it's just never felt comfortable. Um, I've always felt that if you're good at something and people like it, they will seek it out and find it. And I, and I've learned now that that's not like that's sort of true, but you also have to at least put it places where people can find it. <laughs> and, and I don't think I real realized until late that like I, the stuff really wasn't out there. Like I really haven't put, put the things out there that, that, that represent what I do. Um, um, and hopefully this, I got some studio time booked this March to do a solo acoustic record. Um, because I, I thought it's pretty weird that I don't have, a newer one. Uh, I mean, I have new band records and we're actually finishing up a band record right now. Um, but I haven't done a solo music record in a long time. And it's strange because that's kind of a bread and butter, you know, <laughs> but, um, so that's, I guess, 
Yeah. But I try to approach, I approach the writing and the playing like I'm like a full-time, you know, musician and songwriter. Like I, I don't, I'm always working on stuff and always trying to get, you know, at the level of the people that I like. Um, so I think that's the important, like that's really what's important. You know, the craft, the craft of it, you know. Now in a, in a given day where let's say it's a day that you don't have to do your day job how much of that 12 hours of waking time or however many hours of waking time you have is spent on music? Um, if, if I'm, if I'm like, um, like when we're normally when we're gigging and, and, you know, and I'm getting together regularly with, with the guys, uh, usually, you know, two of the three days off that I have, um, at least like, four hours that I like sit down and, and try to work on stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's times where I end up just, you know, hopping in the car and running around all day and, and I don't get much done. But um, when I'm, you know, actively trying to work on material, I do try to set aside like, uh, you know, that time in the day just to, to sit and, and work on stuff. Even if it means I sit for three hours and I get one, one line of a song like that's like I've kind of resigned myself that that's okay because you sat down you worked on it and then the next time you sit down you're probably going to get like three verses it's just that's how it works if you don't put yourself in the seat like it's not definitely not going to happen like I don't I don't really believe in waiting for inspiration because I, I think those songs like that like are so random um and to be honest, I like the songs that I've really, you know, worked on that have been rewritten three times. And, um, uh, like those songs are the ones that, that I can see that like the progress, like, um, of, of, like you can see that, yeah, I've gotten better as a songwriter, you know? Um, but I'm not like a premise writer. So like, like that's the thing. Um, like if somebody gives me a premise, like I think almost, I know, I know it's not cheating, but it almost feels like, (laughs) like, well, that's like, yeah, like, yeah, I can write a song about that. You just gave me the idea of what the song's about. Like, then, then that's like the hard part. Right. Um, but I try to write from like, a uh, there's artists that I really love, uh, guy named Chris Whitley. And I read an interview with him and, and he was talking about like, he'll just play guitar and he would just mumble the verses. Like he, he didn't have the words yet, but he would like kind of mumble the melody and then he would just kind of let his subconscious fill it in. And, and he said that amazingly, like it was those songs that he would listen to later and discover that they were actually really about something. Mm-hmm. Um, like it wasn't like your subconscious, like knows what it wants to communicate and you just have to trust it. Um, so I kind of try to write from that. Um, you know, I try to I sit down with the guitar part and try to let, let the words kind of come into my head. And then as I start to look at what I have, I can see what it's trying to, what's trying to unfold. And, and that's kind of mostly how I approach it, I guess. Well, you have a, a, a very distinct kind of a driving guitar style, the, um, where you use the lower two strings. Uh, quite often in in the way you introduce the songs, not every song, 
Mm -hmm. the um and that's that combination of of picking lines and then strumming and then kind of going back and forth as a one a solo performer who's good at it like yourself can do do you from the since you, you you're trying to do that um that style that you just said the what how do you come up with the guitar is is the guitar riff or the chord structure it's just you're sitting around and go, oh that sounded kind of cool i wonder what that was is that how that transforms um yeah like most of the time it starts with like finding a guitar phrase or, or like some type of riff or progression that sounds interesting um and then i'll i'll work off that and then then when the verses and choruses are there i'll kind of uh, end up changing it again um but a lot of it's like i like if you're playing solo you kind of have to fill some space and 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 you yeah. also want it to be interesting you know like i you know i nothing against people that um you know there's like a lot of beginner people that you know will go out and they 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 haven't learned yet that you don't strum every string on that acoustic guitar at the same attack for three solid minutes. Like, <laughs> um, like that's, um, like I, I'm really picky about that stuff. Like I, when I see people play, like, um, I mean, there's people with beautiful voices, but then you, you they play acoustic and, and you, you almost feel like the acoustic guitar is like reluctantly, they're just doing it reluctantly because they, they think, well, that's, the easiest way that I can get out and play. But I feel like, you know, it, you know, you, you kind of came up in the same, you know, era of solo performers, like people like David Wolf, mm -hmm. Thompson, Richard Thompson. And um, so when you see what can be done, like as a solo performer, like when you watch those types of people, like then, you, you know, you kind of have to step it up a little, <laughs> a little bit. And so I just try to make guitar parts that, that are full and interesting and that you know can grab you know people's ear you know and and that's um and i really like i love i love the acoustic guitar like i just love um i mean i love electric guitar but an acoustic has to me it has a lot more dynamic because it's it physically how you physically play it is is has a lot to do with like your your the way you hold it, the way you, you know, uh, strum, like everything translates out that speaker or, you know, out the sound hole, like, you know, with an acoustic guitar, like an electric, you know, it definitely has like volume dynamic, but I don't know that you can really hear the individuals, you know, I think acoustic, you can really hear somebody's individual because it's, there's nothing hiding it. Like, I think that's the thing, like, you play acoustic just plugged in with no effects like there's nothing to, to cover what you're doing like if you want to make a certain sound or make something sound warm you have to you have to play the instrument that way mm -hmm. you know and um so that's and you can get loud you can open up the strings more you can mute more to make it quieter um like i just like how it's like a living breathing thing you know like the i mean the wood and acoustic is is alive, you know, like it, it, it responds to humidity, it responds to cold, um, you know, it's a living, breathing thing. And I think that's why I like it. And just the feeling like, you know, you have a big 
solid acoustic guitar and you strum it and it's like against you, like it's feel that. And it's, uh, I think that's why I'm always, you know, looking for a new guitar, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's just some of them, you know, you play and you're like, wow, like that, you know, listen to that texture. Like that's really great, you know. So um, what do you have now for guitars? What are your, your, your main guitars? Um, I have a, I got a Collings uh, D2H, which is basically a, a D28. Um, and I, it's a 96. I, I bought it off Reverb and drove in a snowstorm. Philly to get it. <laughs> and and um, so that's what I'm playing uh, mostly now. Uh, and I have the Blue Ridge uh, BR160, which I was lucky I got, got those guitars before they got really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a good one. So it's, uh, I, I really love that guitar. It like plugged in that guitar, um, like with the band for some reason, like that, that guitar really, uh, you don't have to do anything to it. I mean, it's just straight. You can do straight flat EQ on, on most soundboards and it sounds, it sounds great. Um, cause I used to do this, like I had a loud and with a dual source, um, and I had an LR bags, paraacoustic DI, and, and all I found was with more stuff I had to adjust. Like the more I just got frustrated, like um, so I just went to a straight preamp pickup and with no adjustments, um, and I found that that that's the best thing for me. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Now, now, what do you use for guitar strings? What's your favorite uh, brand and gauge? I use those, uh, the Elixir Phosphor Bronze, so it doesn't really have a coating on it, um, but they are they are smooth like Elixirs, and they and this Phosphor Bronze, like they last. I don't have like my fingers don't have a high pH, uh, like my my fingers barely sweat, and. Uh, and I don't build calluses for some reason. Um, I have like baby soft hands, like, um, so I don't go through strings like a lot of people do. Um, so I can, I can play a set of these elixirs for a couple months, <laughs> um, sometimes longer, uh, embarrassingly. Uh, sometimes I haven't changed strings for a long time. <laughs> well, you know, the, cause I use elixirs also, the phosphor brown bronze, and there are, some of my guitars, and they're not necessarily the guitar that I play all the time, but I did play those guitars maybe all the time for a period of, say, two years or something, because I'm like you. I'm constantly changing, as you know. And I'll look down sometimes when I play the guitar, and I'm thinking, I don't think I've changed the strings on this guitar in like five years. <laughs> but then again, I don't play the guitar every day for those five years. Um, what? How many guitars do you have right now? Uh, you know, the, at one time I had over fifty. That was way too many. The uh, that was back in the the late two thousands. Um, well, probably you know the early two thousands actually. And when the bubble burst in the real estate market in in two thousand six two thousand seven, I had to sell guitars to pay bills. So, and I realized I had way too many. So I tend to hover anywhere between fifteen and twenty. The problem I find is that I will buy one if it's not better than one of the ones I have or doesn't have a different or uniqueness to it that I might like, <clears throat> excuse me, then the then I should sell that one. The problem I have is there are probably three or four that I have 
that I don't play very much, but from a nostalgia standpoint, I can't get rid of them. I have two guitars built by a fellow named Mike Marler who passed away at the age of 40, 47. And I was one of the first people who had him build guitars where I told other people about the guitars and he ended up selling a whole slew of guitars after that. It kind of put his his uh, guitar building on the map only because he had never self-promoted at all. A few friends knew, and I did some online reviews and people, you know, I had a fellow, you're talking about a snowstorm, I had a fellow from the Adirondacks up in New York State who had seen my review, ended up driving from New York City where he was having a business meeting and it was a, a, an approaching blizzard coming up. Um, it had pretty much hit the D.C. area or the Richmond area and was coming up here. He left New York City, drove down to Frederick where I live to play the guitar for 15 minutes, my guitar, and said, I have to go now because I have to drive. He, when he arrived here, it was the brunt of the storm. I mean, we already had like eight or 10 inches. He got in his car, and it, the storm basically followed him all the way up to the Adirondacks. When he got home, he had four feet of snow in his driveway. The um, So I won't sell those guitars. And then there's a couple others. They're just so unique. So what I find is out of the 20, and I say I have to sell some guitars, there's eight or 10 of them where I don't want to sell them. So now I'm stuck with the ones that I don't play, <laughs> but they're unique that nobody else really wants. So that's why I end up with, you know, 15 or 20 of them. But, and you yeah. purchased a, a, one of the um, guitars from me. Gosh, what was that two or three years ago? I think. Yeah, I bought, um, I got a blue Ridge from you. Is that that's yeah. what I bought from you? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I bought that to be, uh, a second guitar that I tuned a whole step down. Um, but it's funny, like, uh, you know, those Blue Ridge guitars, um, it was the same model as, as the one I have, but um, they just plugged in, same pickup. Uh, just wasn't the sound, was it? Sounded completely, <laughs> completely different. Yeah. So what's cool is that, like, all the guitars that I've had that I, that I parted with, my friends have them. Um, so that's pretty cool, like, like that guitar, um, there's a gentleman named Ben Wank who is a local farmer. Uh, he has his own cider uh, company called Plowman Cider, um, and he's a one of those local musicians that can play with anybody and any type of music. And he's just a fun. Uh, they, he has a band called Chuck Darwin and the Knuckle Draggers. Great um, name, great name. Which, which I think my my bass player is also he's also in that band as well. Um, but he has that, he has the Blue Ridge and my drummer has my, I uh, sold, I had a Taylor, uh, 214 that actually wrote, uh, all the songs on the seasonal effective record. I think I wrote all those songs on that Taylor. Um, and he has that guitar. And the only reason I got rid of that was because, um, I was playing a gig one night and that guitar solo was amazing. Like you, you know, plug that guitar by itself into any PA. And, and I think Taylor's have a very consistent, like solo acoustic sound. I think it, they're probably one of the most warm and natural sounding plugged in guitars, I think. But if you turn the volume up to a certain point, it's like if you're playing with a group, um, that sensor in the neck, um, when you fret near it, it makes like a clacking noise. 
if the gain's up too much um, or the volume's up too much. And once I started hearing that sound, <laughs> I couldn't not hear it anymore. And so I ended up selling that guitar to him. Um, and because uh, I, I, I did really love that guitar a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, so he has that. So I, I feel like if I get rid of stuff that I care about, it has to go to people that I know. Um, just so in case I really want it back, like maybe, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I have a Takamini, uh, the EAN 10 C, which is like the, it's the best guitar they ever made. It's what the Garth Brooks mm-hmm. model is modeled after. Um, and I love that guitar. Like, uh, it was a really, I was having like a, uh, pretty tough time and I, and, and it was, I had, I had been playing for about a year at that point, like going to open mics. And I had just recently allowed my parents to come hear me play. Because <laughs> <laughs> like for a year, they never, like they knew I was doing it, but they never heard me sing and never heard me play guitar, you know, in front of people. And so they came down to a local uh, cafe and uh, I played an open mic there. And, um, and they were just kind of like, wow, like, like, you really like this fits you so i was having like a pretty hard time uh kind of during this stretch of months and uh my father showed up at, at the er where i was working one day and just out of the blue and i was like wow like you know cool like my dad came to visit and uh, he was out with the other medics like smoking across the street there like a little smoking spot and uh so he came up and was like, yeah, like I got something to show you. And, and, and in the medic office, like I had been in the ER, he had brought this guitar in the case into the medic office. And so I walked in there and it's like this Takamini and, um, um, it was just a great, uh, great guitar, like played great, still plays great. Um, never goes out of tune. You can capo it on the 10th fret and the thing doesn't change intonation. It's like wow. great guitar. But I hate the. I just don't like the electronics in it. That's the only. That's the only problem with it. And I've tried magnetic sound hole pickup, and um, eventually, like I'll, I'll probably figure something out for it because I really like that guitar a lot. But um, now I just use it as my open tuning guitar at home. Like mm-hmm. that's what I use. So. Well, it might uh, be a really good guitar to be mic'd in the studio, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only thing with that is like I when I usually when I go in, um, like when I switch to that guitar, it kind of takes me about a week to get to where like that guitar feels back to, mm-hmm. to feels natural. And that's like I'm real, I like I over feel and think everything, and so um, like I have to when I go in the studio, I really really have to like focus on. Like I'm playing this guitar and I'm going to play this song and, you know, um, I really have to prepare so I don't give myself the yips when I, when I get in the studio. Well, that brings, um. up, that, that brings up a question that I have. Yeah. And you have four, yeah. four CDs, I think. The one I didn't find that I didn't realize when I went on to uh, Pale Barn Ghosts with an S at the end, dot bandcamp.com, which is where your um, seasonal effective and your pale barn ghost 2012 release are on there. The, I didn't realize the pale barn ghost, which is the one with the, the skeleton playing the banjo. Mm-hmm. 
so you have four CDs that you've put out between and maybe, and you're working on another one. So that'll be five in gosh, about 14 years. That's fairly, that's quite prolific for a, what we would call a hobby professional. Um, yeah, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel that way. Like it, <laughs> um, I had like, I always have a good bit of songs. Like, um, like I always have like a, about, there's always about 10 songs floating around that I either haven't given to the band yet, or I haven't really played out. And usually it's because, um, when I started playing in open tunings, um, I kind of found like, um, kind of a, like, I don't know, I just felt like I have these songs that with these open tunings that really, I really like, uh, and they feel very much like me, but the thing is they don't, they're not always songs that translate in front of like, uh, unless it's like a quiet, really quiet, mm-hmm. um, kind of setting. And so I feel like I have these songs that if I play a house concert or, or like a songwriter showcase, like I can play these songs. But the problem is that a lot of time will pass where I haven't touched those songs. And, um, cause I don't play them with a band or I don't play them out at, you know, louder places. And, and then sometimes I'll just <laughs> forget the tuning or I forget exactly what I was playing. And, um, so it, yeah, I, I really, I would like to, I finally started purchasing home recording equipment so I can, uh, start getting those songs recorded, at least put them where people can find them. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but yeah, like I, it's funny, like my guitar player is just, he's one of these guys that, um, I remember when he got a banjo, he got a banjo and a mandolin, like in the same couple of weeks and ended up recording like two CDs of music of banjo and mandolin, like, you know, like that month. Wow. <laughs> and, and then he's, uh, this is kind of funny and I hope, uh, he, he might hear this. I don't know, but he, uh, um, he fill he, he'll buy these digital 24 tracks, like these Tascam recorders. And I think he's got about four of them right now. And he's afraid to, to download the stuff onto like another hard drive because I think he did it once and he lost a bunch of songs. Mm-hmm. So he just buys a new one. Every time he fills up one of these recorders, he'll buy another one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's got like a whole, um, I think now he's finally, uh, it's during the pandemic, he's actually been going through all of them and just saving the stuff that, um, cause he's got a lot of demos of our stuff that like he'll, he ended up getting rid of because we have like recorded versions of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, he's been going through all that, but, but like in, in, in his, his realm, um, I mean, I could send him five songs a week and he would, come up with parts to it in, in the weekend and and there'll be parts that you're that you're just like wow like they're not even throwaway parts like they're um he's kind of i mean he's probably my favorite guitar player i would have to say like if i could play like anybody and i'm not just saying that because he's the guy that i've been playing with the most like he's truly gifted um and he's one of those people that hears it in his head before it hits his hands like so it doesn't matter what is what is in his hands like if it's a piano or 
a banjo or mandolin. Like he hears the part and he just makes it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's kind of special. I think that's why our, our one of the reasons that our, our, our band has done, I mean, it took a while for our band to do well locally. I mean, I think we've been around for about 10 years doing this and in the last three or four, I feel like we're, um, we have a built-in audience now, but that took it took a lot uh, to get to that point. But I think a lot of it is because um, our dynamic, like we're pretty low volume. Like we can actually play. I mean, we've played like small winery rooms with the full band, and and we usually get the compliment that you know that they've had solo people that were way louder than we were. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I'm very conscious of. Like when we play out. Uh, I want people to be comfortable. Um, I've learned that louder volume does not necessarily translate into hearing better. That's correct. Um, and and I've learned that frequencies in a room, like when, if if you're going to be good at doing sound and making you know good live sound, you really have to learn about room dynamics and bass frequencies. And um, so once you know, I got that stuff figured out. Um, you know, playing live gigs with these guys is, is just been so much fun. Um, well, it's, it's, and we're going to have to end here shortly because yeah, we, we only sure. have so much bandwidth on the, uh, yeah, no problem. on the Podbean site. But the, you know, the, what I've noticed, and I love you solo acoustic. That's the way I hear you live, the times I've heard you. But I must admit that your band records or CDs or recordings, are just as good, but just in a different way. But it's like, I am amazed that your band sound and your solo sound on the recordings, um, like the 30 Lullaby, which I call a solo recording, even though you've got your, your friend playing the, the leads on that. It is, a, one, it's extremely clean. There's not a lot of clutter. Even in the band recordings, it's like... There's a lot going on, but everything is supposed to be there. It's uh, many times you listen to CDs, especially of produced band CDs, and there's probably a third of the what I would call the noise that probably doesn't even need to be there. Yeah, it would almost be a better song if it was without. So that's one of the reasons I love listening to both your solo stuff and now your your band stuff. And we're actually going to uh, finish off the show. You you and I will be off the air by that point in time, but. I'm going to finish off with the song So Pale, which is the title cut from your So Pale 2014 CD. And the reason for it is it starts off with you strumming, and that's all there is, and then the band kicks in. And I think it's a wonderful dynamic in the way that you arrange that song, and it gives a really good representation of your guitar style and then the band playing with you. So that's the one that the folks are going to cool. hear in, in a minute or so. But this has been terrific, Thomas. I, you know, I miss seeing you on a regular basis. I wish there were more showcases slash gigs that I could bring you down. It's, you know, it's only, what, 35, 40 minutes from Gettysburg to, to Frederick. But yeah, there's yeah. just not as many now that Brewer's Alley is no longer. And the Frederick well, Coffee Company, until the, the virus kind of works its way out. I don't know what we're going to do, whether they're going to come back with music or not, but I would love to get you down more often and please keep me abreast of what happens once this opens up so I can come up there maybe because I've never heard you live with the band. That would be such a fun thing. 
It would be cool to, um, I, I would really, when stuff opens back up, I really want to try to, um, to bring people up here and, and start being a little more proactive with doing songwriter type events. Um, I've actually just had a conversation with the owner of the coffee shop here about um, getting the coffee shop back to having live music again, um, but have it be more of a formal like songwriter mm-hmm. showcase and an invite uh, like an audience situation where it's uh, limited to a certain amount of people. Sure. Um, um, because I, it's, yeah, like, you know, the events, you know, one of the reasons like, you know, I love doing anything that, that you put together down in Frederick is that the sound's always good. It's always taken care of. And it's, you always have events in places where music is, it, it fits it, you know, it's not, it's not thrown together. Like it's, it feels like, you know, you're able to get the owners of the places to, um, also, you know, kind of meet the artist halfway and making it a situation where it can be successful. Um, Cause I think if live music isn't successful at a, at a place, it's usually not because of the music. It's usually because it just wasn't set up in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I think it's a two way street, you know, the, perform- the performer has to meet the venue part way. Like, you know, if you play a night and there's only five people and you know, instead of taking, you know, the full, you know, however much money they're giving you, like maybe being like, well, you guys had an off night to so just pay me, you know, what you can do. Like, like I, we do a lot of that with venues at, at, at the start of all this stuff. We were always very, you know, like Roy Pittsburgh is one of our favorite groups of people. Um, they were really generous with us. Like when we started playing there, um, their brewery and but there there'd be nights where you know they would pay us and we're like wow like that's really too much but then you know if we would have a slow night there we would say listen why don't you just like just just pay us half back because it's a slow night you know um because i feel like if you're going to keep you know have things sustained you can't bleed you know you can't bleed people dry you know, um, you know, it's, I, and I, and I, it's hard to, that's probably harder to do for working musicians. Like, I think I have the, I have the, you know, the, uh, um, luxury of, of having other income. So I don't really care about the money part. But yeah. Like we got to get back to, to, to making these types of events, you know, like snafu or, mm-hmm. you know, the brewer's alley showcase, which is such a good, I don't think I ever had a bad time there um it was always good even playing you know only ever done the three song sets but like just even doing that to have those three songs in a room where the sound is good and the audience is gets what you're doing um that's a bit it's a that's like a it's better than playing in front of you know 500 people (laughs) you know if, if there's 20 people like really getting it like that's so that's all that that you really need to get the feeling, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, ho- hopefully people who listen to this podcast will get the feeling listening to the song at the beginning and the song at the end and follow you a little bit more and go to palebarnghosts.bandcamp.com and download one of the two uh, recordings digitally. And, yeah. uh, or maybe you can even, one of them, and I can't remember which one it is, is on Amazon. 
I think it might be Route 30, or maybe it's not. I can't so, remember. So pale, so pale is on iTunes and should be on Spotify, I think. Um, and then uh, I think the Route 30 CD is. I think that's also on iTunes, but mm-hmm. um, that's I got. I haven't listened. It's funny playing that, and I haven't um, I haven't listened to that in a really long time. It's so. Uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I might be coming to appreciate it a little more. Uh, I think when I put it out, it wasn't the, um, I kind of wish I had just done, uh, cause there's bass on there. And I think by adding the bass, um, then it wanted that you needed drums. I think I should have just kept it to acoustic and electric. And, uh, cause I love the songs on that record. Like, um, and I feel like I want to re-record some of those solo. Um, and I think I'm going to do, I think I'm doing that in March. I have 12 new songs to record and I'm going to record probably five or six like older songs. Um, and I'm just going to put it all up for free on Bandcamp. So, uh, hopefully soon. <laughs> well, Thomas, this has been terrific. Thank you so much. It's fun you, for Tom. me to, to chat with you and uh, I hope you, uh, have a good rest of your day and I hope to hear you live sometime soon. You as well, and uh, I appreciate you uh, uh, letting me do this. Uh, it was great. I'll oh. talk to you very soon. Sounds good, Thomas. Thanks so much. Take care, bud. All right, bye-bye. That was Thomas Rue, and he is one of my favorite singer-songwriters, just his guitar style, his delivery, his writing style. And we're going to finish off the show with the song, which is the title track from his Soul So Pale CD, from 2014, Pale Born Ghosts, So Pale.
The Wisping Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link. wispymopmusic.podbean.com or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much. Good to